This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. Hey everyone, we're here in week three of Music Month on Last Days, but before we dive into this week's episode, I want to let everyone know about a brand new music podcast we're launching called Get to the Hook. It's a weekly show hosted by Charles Latibodier and our resident music savant, Eric Colley. Each week, they tackle a big issue in music. Think everything from Taylor Swift breaking Grammy records to retrospectives on 80s charity songs like We Are the World. It's really smart. They're even kind of funny. And you might actually learn something. So go ahead and check it out. And with that, on to this week's episode. And these children that you spit on as they try to change their worlds are immune to your consultations. They're quite aware of what they're going through. Changes and face the strain. On June 23rd, 2004, David Bowie took the stage in Prague for the 109th stop of his worldwide tour in support of his album, Reality. Bowie, now 57, was no longer the visionary and provocative iconoclast who had once blended rock, glam, and avant-garde styles to revolutionize music and fashion. He was now stable and measured, having put behind him years of drug-fueled partying and sexual promiscuity in favor of a strictly disciplined diet and exercise regimen, and when at home, early nights in front of the TV with his wife of 12 years, the supermodel Iman. The set list for the tour focused on his new album, but at over two hours long, Bowie had time to span his 30-plus years in music, often starting with his first mainstream hit in 1970, The Man Who Sold the World, and then weaving through his other classics, Space Oddity, Changes, Fame, and Let's Dance, among many others. He'd been touring for eight straight months with only short breaks, and Bowie was complaining of exhaustion. Yet, somehow, on this brutally hot night in Prague, he was in peak form, belting his hits to thousands of screaming fans, most of whom were at least as old as Bowie, but with a fraction of his energy. In a moment, however, everything changed, as Bowie found himself struggling for breath and felt his chest constrict. He grabbed at his shoulder and raised his elbow high in a futile effort to alleviate the pain, and his voice trailed off. His bassist, Gail Ann Dorsey, said he was pale, translucent almost, as he stopped singing and stumbled off stage. Later that night, a doctor misdiagnosed Bowie with a pinched nerve and cleared him to return to the stage just two nights later at a festival in Germany. He made it through a set, ended by singing Ziggy Stardust, thanked the crowd, walked down the stairs leading off the stage, and collapsed. At a local hospital, a doctor found him to have suffered a heart attack and performed emergency surgery to open a blocked artery. Over the next decade, David Bowie largely vanished from public life as his health deteriorated. He became a virtual shut-in, and his body grew frail. The man once known for acrobatic shows and outrageous personas was relegated to shuffling around his Manhattan apartment. And then, in early 2014, he was diagnosed with terminal liver cancer. But then something remarkable happened. Shortly after his cancer diagnosis, nearly 11 years after the release of his last album and 10 years after his last concert tour, Bowie enjoyed an astonishing burst of creativity. Over the next 18 months, Bowie wrote as many as 100 songs, released two new albums, and wrote and launched a successful musical. He had been fighting for so long to regain his health that his terminal diagnosis actually freed him to refine his staggering genius. He was again prolific, recapturing all the brilliance that had once made him one of the most influential, admired, and successful artists in music history. But there was no outrunning the cancer. 
By Christmas 2015, riddled with pain, he began to say goodbyes to his legions of friends and others who had helped him make his life and career what it was, and hunkered back into his apartment to be with Amon and his two children. On January 10th, 2016, he passed away in his sleep. David Bowie was 69 years old. I'm Jason Beckerman. I'm Derek Kaufman. This is Last Days, David Bowie. Hard to overstate what David Bowie accomplished during the 18 months after his cancer diagnosis, all while undergoing treatment and suffering through excruciating pain. His friend and longtime producer, Tony Visconti, said Bowie would come to the studio without eyebrows or hair after undergoing chemotherapy, but he had, quote, the energy of a very young person diving into everything with fearless joy and abandon. His two late-life albums, The Next Day and Black Star, are widely considered to be as good as anything he'd done since the mid-1970s. The latter, Black Star, won three Grammy Awards and the British Album of the Year Award. It is acclaimed as one of the best British albums of the 2010s and was his best-selling album in over 25 years. Meanwhile, he painted, wrote poetry, and wrote and produced a musical that debuted off-Broadway just two days before he died. But this was hardly a surprise to anyone who knows anything about David Bowie. He was a singer and songwriter, a record producer, an accomplished painter and sculptor, and an actor. During the 36-year period before he got sick, he released an astonishing 26 albums, 11 of which hit number one, and he starred in 22 feature films. He was just relentless. But perhaps Bowie's defining trait was that he was consumed by his quest for reinvention, which was captured both in his music and in the various personas he adopted. He went by Major Tom, Ziggy Stardust, and the Thin White Duke, among other nicknames. And the New York Times called him a, quote, infinitely changeable, fiercely forward-looking songwriter who taught generations of musicians about the power of drama and personas. Bowie's first truly great album, The Rise and Fall of Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars, was released in 1972 and is regarded as one of the most seminal works in rock music history. It tells the story of Bowie's alter ego, Ziggy Stardust, an androgynous rock star who acts as a messenger for extraterrestrial beings, delivering a message of hope and salvation to humanity. The album's very first single and biggest hit, Starman, was a huge departure from Bowie's earlier, more formulaic work and pushed the boundaries of music. The album really did perfect the modern rock opera. It's that concept of having a story told beginning to end through the songs. The art form was pioneered in the 1960s and really brought mainstream by The Who with Tommy in 1969. But Bowie pushed boundaries with his eccentricities and theatricality that were later emulated by Queen and Meatloaf and Pink Floyd, among others, all of whom reached staggering levels of success mirroring Bowie's format. But it wasn't just Bowie's musical stylings that were revolutionary. His creation of the alter ego Ziggy Stardust itself was like nothing that had come before. He married the music with onstage performances that forever changed rock and roll. So, so you got to think about it, just like Italian opera, right? You've got, you've got the singer singing the songs. You've got the acting and the personas and the characters that are acting out what's in the music itself. And Bowie basically said, I'm going to do the same thing for rock and roll. I'm going to tell a story. I'm going to create a character. And every time I'm on stage, I'm never going up there as David Bowie. 
I'm Ziggy Stardust. And, and what's incredible about it is that he pulled it off. You, you yeah. know, this is not something easy to do. It is both inventive. It hadn't been done before, but you see people fall on their face with this. Think about the more modern context. You've got Chris Gaines coming out yes. when Garth Brooks was already a huge star. David Bowie, when he was Ziggy Stardust, it was cool, man, to have the lightning bolt on your face. This is still a trendy thing to sort of uh, model yourself after David Bowie. Some people can do it and some people just can't. You've got, there's a difference in kind, right? You also have like the Beatles that were having the help and, and a hard day's night, right? These are movies that are being created based on the lyrics in a song. That yeah, was they're very sort of retrofit. Right, that was different. Our producer's coming along and saying, hey guys, we can make money back on the backs of these songs that are already enormous hits. Bowie was conceptualizing the entire thing. I mean, he was, he said later in life, he had a, he had a musical he created. These are musicals he's creating right from the get-go, basically, to have these characters performing on stage to the music. And it's an incredible feat, too, because the music itself, the songs stand alone. You can listen to tracks, you can listen to yeah. Starman, and it's a banger on the radio. It's not like a musical, right? Like, you go to Broadway and all those songs make sense and they tell the narrative. What he was doing was making both a story and music that could stand alone. It's truly, truly remarkable. Let's take a quick ad break, and we'll be back after this. If you're shopping while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast, then you know and love the thrill of the hunt. But are you getting the thrill of the best deals? Rakuten shoppers do. They get the brands they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Macy's, Adidas, and Walmart, and even stack sales on top of cash back. It's easy to use, and you get your cash back through PayPal or check. The idea is simple. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers, and Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back. So download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's Rakuten. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. There's a separate notable element to Bowie's Ziggy Stardust persona in that it challenged traditional notions of gender and identity in a time when gay artists were forced to pretend to be straight. Elton John and Freddie Mercury, for example, were both famously married to women in the 1970s. Bowie, who, as we will discuss, had wide-ranging sexual preferences, leaned into a non-straight performative identity with androgynous appearances and flamboyant costumes. He was decades ahead of his time. Today's gender-bending stars like Madonna, Lady Gaga, Lord, Lenny Kravitz, and countless others cite Bowie as their singular inspiration and the person who paved their way. Janelle Monet, who is perhaps the most outspoken gender nonconformist among major musicians today, credits Bowie with much of her success. She covered his song Heroes in 2014, and after his death two years later, said Bowie was her guide and her teacher and the person who showed her that it was okay to be free even though there were, might be consequences. She said if she ever feels vulnerable or fearful, she asks herself, what would Bowie say? What would he do? And I just go with that. But the most famous Bowie disciple of all is Kanye West, who has repeatedly praised Bowie as an artist of singular brilliance, calling him fearless and creative and his music magical. Say what you will about Kanye and Derek, you and I have said a lot of really negative things that he has earned uh, about Kanye. But there's no denying his brilliance and his belief that he is a person of unparalleled genius. So for him to so full-throatedly admire David Bowie as a genius himself is really high praise. Yeah, I don't want to sort of overstate the comparison. They're both geniuses, but you know, there was a there's certainly an arrogance to Kanye West, a sort of belief in his own brilliance that I don't really associate as much with David Bowie. I just think they're both very avant-garde geniuses. I'm sure David Bowie was aware he was creative, but that his persona wasn't as much out front about touting his own genius. Right. We just all admired. A lot of it, I think part of that is because Bowie came up with this stuff 
this is how he started. Basically, yeah. he was he was out there and doing his weird stuff early on. Kanye kind of has grown into that. I'm not taking anything away from Kanye. Sure. He's a full fledged genius. There's no question about it. But Bowie, he he didn't feel the need to tout it because it's just always who he was. He was That's just right. this artist deep down inside of him. There's all this, this really, you and I were talking about this earlier, this really weird little thing that we want to talk about. It's a creepy connection between Bowie and Kanye. And you got to credit Rolling Stone magazine for this one. Uh, but it goes something like this. The cover photo of Bowie's 1972 Ziggy Stardust album, which we talked about, features a solitary Bowie leaning against a brick wall on a London street strewn with cardboard boxes. The only focal point in the photo, photo are Bowie's face and directly above him, an illuminated shop sign in perfect focus bearing the name K West, K period West. I, I looked this up, Jason, because I didn't know this yeah. about that album. It's obviously a very famous album, but I had never noticed it. It's 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 perfectly focused. I mean, it's definitely a, a feature of the album. It's not sort of in the background and maybe not related. Look, his last name was already West, All right. and it's just an initial. All right, so coincidence, right? Maybe Kay West above Bowie and Kanye West, and he seems to be the uh, you know the modern equivalent. But then, the first song on the track list is a song called Five Years." The lyrics for which tell a story about how Earth will end in five years unless a, quote, star man comes to Earth to save us all. Well, five years and two days later, so basically five years to the day, Kanye West is born. And I would assume Kanye knows this connection yes. because he feels and he'll he's fond of telling you that he's the anointed one. He's the yes. genius. I bet he knows that he's star man. Like, yeah, in that's some right. sense, I think Kanye West thinks that he is the offspring, the creative wellspring and the continuation of David Bowie in some way. I'm sure he does. I'm sure he does. <laughs> yeah. So the Ziggy Stardust album itself brought Bowie a lot of critical acclaim and universal admiration within the music circles. And Rolling Stone even ranked it as the 35th greatest album of all time. But it also solidified David Bowie as a rock and roll superstar. He went on to release two albums in 1973 and a third in 1974, each of which immediately went to number one in the UK. And his 1975 album, Young Americans, yielded his first U.S. number one singles, Fame, as well as another enormous hit in both the U.S. and U.K., Young American. Now, I want to give you a little bit of trivia about these two songs. Fame, uh, John Lennon actually dropped by the London studio where they were recording and decided to jump in. He ends up singing back up and playing the guitar and actually made some lyrical suggestions, which Bowie liked. And Lennon is created as a co-writer of the song Fame, one of David Bowie's hugest hits. It's just the small circles of... Uh, you know, sort of the music industry at that time, they all kind of work together. Yeah. And it's 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 amazing. I mean, as good as that song is, it's so associated with David Bowie, you've got maybe the biggest icon of all in the background. Right. It's it's it's, it's incredible. Young Americans, a, there was a backup singer on that track who was completely unknown R&B singer at the time by the name of Luther Vandross. And you can kind of make out that Luther velvety voice if you listen closely to the chorus of that song. Here, take a listen. So 
So with the mainstream success of the album, Bowie abandoned the Ziggy Stardust persona in favor of what he labeled the Thin White Duke, which was characterized by sleek suits, a detached demeanor, and a fascination with mysticism and European culture. This Everyone how, knows this look. This is how I picture him, because when, yep. when I was a little kid, he was in the full Thin White Duke uh, era, and he had the hair slicked back, gelled hard back, the old sort of tight suit with the thin pencil ties, yes. right? And this was who David Bowie was, in my mind's eye as a kid. Yeah, you know, I think of the Ziggy Stardust as the 70s uh, yeah. David Bowie, and I think of the 80s, sort of, he looked a little more kind of almost like hip Wall Street. You know, right, he had right, the, right. the very styled suits. The Thin White Duke's 1976 world tour filled arenas throughout Europe and North America. I mean, David Bowie was a huge superstar at this yeah. point, and it transformed him into one of the most bankable rock stars in the world. But with the success came an extravagant lifestyle and a drug habit that would shadow Bowie's career for the better part of a decade. He called cocaine his, quote, soulmate, saying, quote, it was easily obtainable and it kept me working. I wasn't really a recreational guy. I was much more, OK, let's write 10 different projects this week and make four or five sculptures. And I just stay up 24 hours a day until most of that was completed. It's it's interesting because we think of cocaine as an excess party drug. He was using it as a tool. He sort of treated it like Adderall. Uh, like hold I need on, to there's focus. a lot of excess partying that we're going to learn about in just a second. Yeah, here. but just wait. A former lover said Bowie didn't do lines of cocaine, but he would instead fill a bowl with it and dive in face first. I mean, it sounds right out of Scarface. Bowie's cocaine addiction begot other habits as well. He would routinely have sex with multiple partners in a night, and gender was of little concern to him. He reportedly had sex with hundreds of people in the late 70s alone, among them Elizabeth Taylor, Marianne Faithful, Bianca Jagger, Susan Sarandon, a transgender dancer named Romy Hogg, and of course his most talked about lover, Mick Jagger. His first wife, Angie, called him a, quote, bisexual alley cat, which was an overt reference to his indiscrimination in choosing partners. In a 1972 newspaper interview, Bowie labeled himself gay, but four years later said he was sexually attracted to both men and women. And by the 1980s, now largely clean of drugs, he told Rolling Stone that his declaration of bisexuality was, quote, the biggest mistake I ever made, and that he was always a, quote, closet heterosexual. Make of that what you will. I don't know what we make of it. I don't know what to make of it either, because growing up, I had always heard the stories about Mick Jagger and David Bowie. They would perform together, dancing in the streets. You remember yep, that, yep. that video they did together? And there were sort of rumors. And he was open about it. it, it he was from another era. Like, he was always ahead of the curve. We now think of non-binary and gender fluidity. He was from a, he was in today's era. That's he where was he, today's right. era, but it was, it was 40 years ago. Right. But yes. he, would, he, would, he came out in the 1970s and said, yeah, I'm gay. Yeah. Which was, it was no big couldn't deal. be that person, right? And then he says, well, I actually like sleeping with both men and women. So he, I don't know if he used the term bisexual, but he described it as both men and women. And then a few years later, he says, you know what? Basically, I was just in a drug-fueled haze, and I think that I've always been a closet heterosexual. I don't really have a desire for anybody except women, so I'm straight. Yeah, I mean, by all accounts, he had a quite healthy, functional marriage with Amon, so I take him at his word. It, but was, it was later. I mean, his, it first, was later his first marriage was desperately non-functional. There's a story that on their wedding day, I don't know if before or after the nuptials, yeah. They brought a third a guy in, a third party, and, and had sex with that guy on their wedding day. So, I mean, teach their own. Good, what a good. time to be alive <laughs> and to be such an amazing rock star. It was just, it was a heady, heady, heady time. Uh, whatever moral qualms one might have with Bowie's drug use and promiscuity, there's no denying that it accompanied a period of unrivaled genius. From 1975 through 1983, he had 11 top 10 songs and five number one hits, including Fame, Space Oddity, Under Pressure with Queen. Ashes to Ashes, and by far the biggest hit of his career, Let's Dance, in 1983. 
But with the unparalleled fame Bowie achieved with Let's Dance and what he called the, quote, extraordinary acceptance he'd received from audiences, it came with a change in Bowie no one seemed to anticipate, an aversion to public attention. He wrote that he'd firmly closed the door on his alter egos and lost interest in Ziggy Stardust or Major Tom, and he was unwilling to satisfy the fans' unquenchable thirst for more about Bowie the man. He wore disguises in public and scolded a bandmate once for even mentioning in public that he liked a certain television show. He did fewer and fewer interviews, and when he did them, as with NPR in 2002, he made a point to say he wanted a less public existence and would prefer to never tour again. Frankly, if I could get away with not having to perform, I'd be very happy. It's not my favorite thing to do. I don't, as, I, as I say, I don't mind trying it out um, and making sure something seems to work well, but I really do rather want to move on because I think it's rather a waste of time endlessly singing the same songs every night for a year. And it's just not what I want to do. What I like doing is writing and recording and uh, much more on the, I guess, the, uh, on that creative level. What a fascinating comment. Yeah, you know, Jason, it's fascinating to hear him. I mean, this is a guy who is otherworldly levels of fame. And he's saying, look, if I could get away with not having to perform, I wouldn't perform. It, 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 but what's he talking about? Because he, at the time, he was worth about $200 million. So it's not like he, you and I would say. There was no I, financial It's need. not like you and I say, if I, could, if I could get away with not going to work, I wouldn't. We have to go to work to pay the bills. He didn't. So what's he talking about? You have to just believe that he was just wired this way. Yes. This was a guy who, and the cocaine stories bring me back to this. He, The way he talked about doing cocaine to just get out his creative impulses. Yep, that's right. He had a lot to accomplish and he was going to do it. I, I, you know, I remember it was sad to hear this discussion of how much it made him uncomfortable in some way to be out there performing and be public. Because when I was growing up, David Bowie was the coolest guy. I was quite young, but he was in Labyrinth. Do you remember yeah, this movie, sure. Labyrinth? And he was so alien. He was, he played Jareth, the like wizard. And to hear that, uh, you know, someone as flamboyant and out there as David Bowie was uncomfortable about being so out there was strange to me. Well, look, I mean, by this point, he's in his mid-50s, right? He's just, he's maturing, he's tiring, he doesn't want to go out there anymore. But it is sad that he, what I find sad is that he didn't want to be out there. He has a brand new baby at home. He's got a daughter who's born in 2000 with Iman. Um, and, but by 2003, despite the fact he doesn't want to be out there, he's got this brand new baby at home. He's like, you know what? I'm going to go out on a, uh, on tour not only on tour, it's a tour, as we learned at the top, where he's going to perform 110 shows over eight months. It's not just any tour. This is one of the grand tours in music history. And he's doing it in middle age. Yes. It's, it's an exhausting schedule for a 20-year-old. And here's David Bowie in the twilight of his career. So, of course, he has this tour, 110 shows over eight months, until it all comes crashing down with the heart attack we talked about on stage in Germany. After his death in 2016, Iman, who has throughout her career refused to give many interviews and steadfastly protected her and David's privacy, released no public statements other than to post a photo of her late husband with the words love and gratitude. She held a private funeral and scattered his ashes in Bali. During a tribute at the British Music Awards a few weeks later, Bowie's closest friend, the actor Gary Oldman, called him an artist of transcendent talent. And Annie Lennox, who had performed under pressure with Bowie at Freddie Mercury's funeral 25 years earlier, and who, like him, weaved gender nonconformity into her music and onstage persona, said goodbye to her longtime friend in an ethereal fashion David Bowie just would have loved. She said, quote, At the loss of someone who has impacted and influenced your life, you can hardly begin to measure the shape of what's left behind. Our personal and collective inner landscape has shifted, and we're trying to come to terms with this. No one exists forever, and it seems our elegant gentleman was well aware that his last mortal chapter was about to reach its conclusion. The bejeweled remains of Major Tom lie dormant in a dust-coated spacesuit. 
it leaves me breathless. You must see it to believe it. He knew. He could see through it all.
The album really did perfect the modern rock opera. It's that concept of having a story told beginning to end through the songs. The art form was pioneered in the 1960s and really brought mainstream by The Who with Tommy in 1969. But Bowie pushed boundaries with his eccentricities and theatricality that were later emulated by Queen and Meatloaf and Pink Floyd, among others, all of whom reached staggering levels of success mirroring Bowie's format. 